Welcome to Movies Charles Hasn't Seen, episode 100. My name is Crossman. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. Uh, each week, Wilson and I share a classic movie we have seen with Charles that he hasn't seen. However, this week, those rules still apply, but Charles has chosen the movie. Right. Normally, Crossman and I take turns, but now this week, it's Charles' turn after 100 episodes. So, congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you, you I earned a pick. You earned a pick. Yeah. Uh, so, what did you spend that pick on? Well, we saw Metropolis this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1927 uh, classic. Yes. Yep. Tell us about it, Charles. <laughs> All right. Plot's a bit complicated. So in Metropolis... It is a bit complicated. Um, <laughs> don't say. There's this great city called Metropolis in the future that's, like, huge and bustling, um, but all of its working class work in miserable conditions underneath the ground. And it's all led by one man named Joe Frederson. And Frederson's son, who I believe is named Freder. Thing, which was a little confusing. Yeah, I agree that that is confusing. Um, but he like falls in love with this random pretty lady and follows after her, uh, and in doing so, kind of discovers the like laboring underworld to the city, and ends up kind of stumbling into the workers, kind of organizing and trying to gain better conditions for themselves. But his father discovers what is happening and has the woman who's helping them organize replaced with a robot version of her who incites them into a more violent revolt because the father's hoping to like, have an excuse to put them down or something like that. Um, and so the violent revolt happens as it's instigated by the crazy robot version of the woman and they destroy all the machinery. Uh, and flood the underworld city, uh, which threatens to kill their children. But Freder and the real Maria, who was replaced by a robot earlier, um, <laughs> work to save the children. Yes. Um, but the workers all think that the children have died, and so they go and kill, well, they try to kill Maria, end up killing the robot version of her. They realize that they've been duped by the robot, uh, eventually the inventor who created the robot gets killed and they realize that their children are safe after all and they decide that they are going to have a discussion uh, with the head of the city over fairer working conditions, hopefully. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good summary of a lot of stuff that happens in this movie. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, so I was saying at the end of, the, uh, of last week's episode that if you had told me two years ago when we started doing this that when you did get a pick you would select a nearly 100-year-old silent German film, I would have been surprised. Yes. <laughs> but I probably would have guessed this film. Um, so what did you think of it? Did you like it? Yeah, actually, I, I quite liked it. Okay. Uh, I was a little surprised. I was worried going into it since it's like a black and white silent film, and I've had a lot of trouble like watching all the black and white films that we've done so far, mm -hmm. right? Because I feel like a lot of my perception is hinged around color, and taking that away is very difficult. But like, I really like the aesthetic of this film. The sets are just so brilliantly designed that yeah. it kind of yes. made up for a lot of that. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, I would have yeah. guessed that you would have liked it just on that. Fact yeah, that I like knew that I, you're like a big architecture head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like that's one of the biggest reasons I was into this is because in all my readings of like architecture design and like urban design yep. and things like that, you come across Metropolis a lot because its visions of the city are so grand and like forward thinking mm -hmm. and all that, right? And it it has a few shots of like the above ground city and they look incredible. Like all these tall kind of art deco and futurist looking buildings and like the uh, the sky bridges and like just a bustling city. It looks incredible. Uh, I just love the design of this movie. And I thought the story was pretty compelling. Uh, still something that's very relevant to today. You know, it's yeah. an ongoing struggle <laughs> of the people, right? That is um, true. And yeah, so all in all, like I was, I was pretty pretty happily surprised okay. by it. So you're batting 100, or 1,000 then, right? Yes. You, you, you picked one <laughs> yes. and you liked it. You're doing better than either of us. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you could theoretically count the 2001 as my pick since I saw that it was in theaters. I suppose. So we, we counted so as like a collective pick. So you're still batting But like then. that became like literally one of my top five favorite movies of all time. So like I have Even a, better. I think I know what I'm going to like maybe. Yeah, it's, uh, so far stick with the sci-fi is, yeah. is what I'm hearing. <laughs> I actually thought about selecting this movie when we did our sci-fi month in November. Um, and, and didn't, uh, but um, I'm glad we got a chance to watch it. Uh, when did you see this one for the first time, Crossman? Ages ago. Yeah? When I was a kid. Really? Yeah. Okay, because I, I, how was that, watching this? Because I did not watch this as a kid. I mean, it's I was, a pretty obtuse film. Yes. Uh, <laughs> for an adult, it's an obtuse film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I've always liked it, though, I think for similar reasons to Charles. It has, like, a weird look mm -hmm. to it, and it's, like, very compelling. Um, Surprisingly good special effects and yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. The cinematography also seemed ahead of its time. I can't say ahead of its time since I don't know that many movies from that era, but it has lots of like very precise framing techniques that yeah. feel very modern. Well, well Fr Fritz Lang like invented a lot of those techniques. Yeah. Like, it's, it, it's, ahead of, so. it's ahead of the time in the sense that it's something that he said, this seems like a good idea, and then other people agreed with him and started doing it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, something even more impressive than ahead of its time. Um, but yes, you are absolutely correct. Yeah. I, I did something a little weird on this watch through. I So I watched the German, ver like the original German version. Really? That mm -hmm. I found on YouTube. With German intertitles? like subtitles. Um, so how were you able to follow it? Well, I, I know the film. I've seen it many times. Oh, have you? Uh, okay. Um, so I was interested to see like what the like the card design would look like on and. Oh, is it different? Yeah, I mean, German's a much more uh, verbose it's language, <laughs> and yes. like how they deal with it is is interesting. Wait, okay. Which uh, uh, cut was this? Was it still with the recovered 2010 footage? So no, footage? this is this is the edited version because um, there's like the. This is like, um, yeah, this is one of those films where it's hard to know. Cause yes, because they, they keep discovering new scenes of it, like buried in an archive somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, go, oh, I'm my, sorry, go my ahead. My version made it seem like they only discovered new footage that one time. No, that's, that's in, happened it, twice. Okay. At least. Yes. Well, there yeah. <laughs> so there was the, we'll say the original version of the film, like the one that was shown originally in theaters. After it was released, it was criticized very heavily for its length, and so it was cut, cut down significantly. Some of those cuts were restored in the 70s and then additional footage was found in Buenos later. Aires. Yeah, in Buenos Aires. But that yeah. was damaged. Yeah. But then there was another cut from New Zealand and between, oh, between those two versions of the film they okay. were able to re restore it to what they think is about 95% of, of the original film. Right. But that 5% is Unless another version is found, is probably lost to to time. Right, and, and yeah. I mean, this movie came out in 1927, was it? I think so. Yes, yeah, it's a 27. Right, and like Fritz Lang left Germany forever, some five years after that, right, and kind of fled Germany yeah. right, at that point because he's half Jewish, and mm -hmm. I imagine a lot of his the film stock was lost or damaged in that flight, um, and as well as the German film industry, which at the time. It, rivaled Hollywood. Like there, there, there was kind of up in the air like which, if Hollywood or Berlin would be the film capital of the world. Nazis took care of that. <laughs> but like they kind of you know, steamrolled the, the German film industry and abandoned a lot of old German films, especially ones that were sympathetic to communists, and replaced it with you know, their nonsense. Yeah, and, uh, and this film is one, like, has, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's Communist, but it has like class struggle, yes, it, it, like at its core, yeah. well, and I mean, that's obvious from from the film. Yeah, well, like the first, I don't know, hour of this movie just reads as though the Communist Manifesto were its script. Right? Like, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of it is that it, they, yes, they pull back yeah. from that later on. Yes, like, yeah, pretty substantially. Yeah, um, but the early parts of the film is just like it's like you know Brecht wrote it or something. Um, so I think that that content, if Goebbels sits down and watches it, he's going to say, oh, no, we're, <laughs> we're never going to air this again. It must be expunged. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's part of the reason we lost so much of Metropolis. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. And just age, obviously. Like, we've lost a lot of silent films to time. Yeah. Um, a lot. Uh, so I saw, the, the first time I saw this movie was about 10 years ago in college for a class called German Cinema. Um, so like, <laughs> this is the place to start. That's the place to see it. Yeah. Um, I don't think I, I saw. That was the only other time prior to this viewing that I had seen it. Um, I don't think we had the more recent, recently found footage in that screening for that class. So some of the footage that I saw, because I did find the longer, more recent cut. So some of that was the first time I'd ever seen it on this viewing mm -hmm. recently. Um, but it was, uh, so I don't, I, I don't recall what was added and what wasn't. Like I, I, it all looked kind of new to me because it had been a while. Yeah. Um, but it was interesting watching it in an academic context, which I did the first time, um, and watching it alongside some other Fritz Lang movies because he was prolific. He made a lot of films. I'm not sure I've seen anything else that he's made. This isn't my favorite of his. My favorite of his is M. That movie is amazing. He, he ended up making like talkies too eventually. Oh, like, yeah. When he came to the U.S. He, he, like, yeah, he just moved to Hollywood and kept making movies. Yeah. And then he died in like the 70s. Like he yeah. lived a long time. Yeah. And, like was making movies most of that time. Um, 
So I haven't seen a lot of them too, part of the reason is that he just has a lot of them. Um, but this one is well regarded for a reason, but M is my favorite. M is, M is a great movie, it uh, stars Peter Lorre, he's not often in a leading role, speaking German, which he didn't get a chance to do after um, Hitler came to power very often. Um, it, it's a really excellent film. And another person that had to escape, mm, sure escape did. Germany, because yeah. he was Hungarian, I think. That sounds right. He was Eastern European, I think it Hungarian. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. It was certainly not sympathetic to the Nazis. So. Yeah. So he fled, um, probably around the same time. Because M came out in 33, and it was made in Germany. Mm. And I think each of them, I think that was the last film that each of them made in Germany. And they, they fled shortly thereafter. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of historical context to consider when you're talking about Metropolis and, and Fritz Lang in general. Uh, they, they lived in complicated times. Yeah. yeah. As, as a film, it still seems to work. I agree. Um, and, I, and I've seen a lot, number of films from this time period, um, like the original 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I've not seen and that. And some of those films like don't hold up. Like they're clearly like <laughs> from a moment where they were like still trying to figure things out. <clears throat> mm -hmm. This feels like, you know, this is a movie. Yes. And I think some of those other things are like, oh, these are like weird experiments on film. Uh, yeah. And they're from an era when just like the act of something being depicted on screen is is extraordinary. Yeah. Right? Like just like watching someone move on a on a screen or mm -hmm. on a picture is like something you would pay money for. Yeah. Most famously, like the the From the Earth to the Moon was like one of those like early films. Trip to the Moon, you mean? Is it is it that? The, the one in 1902, like the first Yeah, is movie? it called Trip to the Moon? Trip well, the it's moon. based on From the Earth to the Moon. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know what that is. The H.G. Wells book. Oh, okay. Well, I think it got a different name in the adaptation. That's the one where the moon like, gets the bullet in its face? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. So the first narrative film ever is Trip to the Moon and also science fiction. So <laughs> in a sense, like, in a sense, the film is a, a fundamentally sci-fi sci uh, medium. A quick aside, the opening to that book is actually very funny. Okay, I have um, no idea. So it's, it's written by H.G. Wells, and it's <coughs> about Americans, and it's about a group of, it's about a gun, gun club in, in the U.S. Oh. And they're all, they're all Civil War veterans. Uh -huh. And they're just like itching to fire off some guns. <laughs> uh, That's very American. Yeah. Yes, it is. Um, and they're all like amputees because they're all like Civil War vets. And right. they're like, well, we just need to do something with guns. And so <laughs> one, one guy like comes to them and he's like, I have this idea. We're going to build a giant gun. <laughs> And shoot ourselves to the moon, and they all were on board with this. And they're like, "This, this is a fantastic <laughs> idea." <laughs> uh, and then, they and then the book kind of devolves from there. But the uh, the opening of From the Earth to the Moon is very funny and surprisingly contemporary. Wow! In its depiction of Americans, <laughs> yeah, doing stupid things with guns. Yeah, it would actually be a great movie to kind of like remake. That's interesting because it's so American. In its like conception of huh. of guns and treatment of guns. Yeah, I mean, Trip to the Moon, the yeah. movie is I think on Netflix, and it's like twelve minutes long. Yeah, so. you can watch <laughs> it on, on YouTube <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah, so it's not yeah. it, the the first feature length sci-fi movie is this one. This this Metropolis usually gets that credit. Twenty Thousand Leagues, the original, I think, is older and is okay. longer than. Uh, but I don't think it's it's a full full length movie. Okay. I, I feel like it's like thirty or forty minutes. Yeah. And that feels very much like a, a like a high school production okay. of, where they're just like making weird sets <laughs> and they're shooting like the, they do shoot underwater, which is amazing. But they also do like the behind the like fish tank shot. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. Of, like in of Romeo stuff. and Juliet. <laughs> yeah. And the story is like absurd and hard to follow because it jumps around and right because yeah. they don't know. How film functions, yeah. right? In they're a sub under yeah. the sea. Yeah, they don't know how cinema works. Yeah, I mean it is that, but like the elements of like, have you seen Twenty Thousand Leagues? No, I, I don't that think I've seen any iteration on the of it. List. The, the forty minutes of it. No, no, the the Disney version. Oh, oh, gosh, yeah. I think I've seen it. That was that one did not stand tall in my my childhood, but I think I'm pretty sure I have seen it. Yeah, I wonder how it holds up. As a kid, no I love that movie. Okay. <laughs> um, I'd be interested to see. But the, the silent film version does not, not hold good. up as right. a film. Well, and I think that's what's kind of, ex yeah. one of the many extraordinary things about Metropolis is that he is able to tease out this cinematic language that we, st like tropes and concepts, like big picture concepts that we still use today, 
just in terms of like how we present a narrative and the order in which things are 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 edited, right? And mm -hmm. it, like he has a cut where we have a close up of our lead, our, our male lead, and then a close up of Maria, and it goes back and forth like that a few times, mm -hmm. right? And it's like to a modern audience, that's a very conventional normal way of just like showing two people noticing each other. But in 1925, right, like somebody has to come up with the idea that this is how you're going to depict that thing. That's true. I didn't think about that actually since that's such an oft-used technique. Right, because it works, right? Because yeah. it absolutely works. But it, but someone had to say like this is this is what film language is going to look like and this is what what film language can look like when it's communicating something clearly. And he does it here. Yeah, I think there's a lot of shots too where it's like, you know, I'm still actually like not sure how they did some of the stuff that sure. they did in this movie. Yeah. Um, well, like the, the big special effect where Maria is getting transferred into the, copied into the robot and then yeah. they have those rings going, I have no idea how they did that. Yeah, I, I would assume that's actually <laughs> drawn on the film stock That itself. was my huh. guess, yeah. but it's still like it moves really or, smooth. Or and it's, um, Separately animated and then brought brought together. Yeah, but to bring them together is very difficult That's to get them cool. to line up. It's right, like really hard. Yeah, because my guess yeah. was that it was painted onto the painted on as well. But like it's so yeah. consistent throughout the sequence, yeah. and like it moves so smoothly, right? And yeah, well, like, so they're they're matting it somehow. That right. Um, yeah, that's hard to do. Oh, don't shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and the use of miniatures is actually like pretty mm -hmm. convincing still. Like, yeah, a lot of the sets. Yeah just seemed so epic in scale, especially, I mean, obviously the ones that had people in them, but like, mm -hmm. I wonder how they did that. Did they just build a giant set? Yes. Yeah. There, there were yeah. so many extras, thousands of extras for this movie. That's another thing I was impressed by, is just the raw volume of people that they had to <laughs> yeah. control in this movie. There's huge crowds throughout the entire movie in all different contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, hundreds of people in scenes. Like, yeah. It's such yeah. an epic movie. Right, and yeah, and he would just kind of move them around. Fritz Lang would just, you know, move them around as needed, as though they were also props. <laughs> um, what I was noted on this viewing as well is that, yes, this is a very early movie, but he's still drawing influence from other things. So he has that sequence, uh, like 20, 30 minutes into the movie, where like the big machine that everybody's working on like transforms into some sort of, you know, god temple thing. Moloch. Yeah, right. That people. Oh, yeah, are, that was a little weird. They didn't reference that again. Right. What he's, I think, the, the ideas he is drawing from there are from Russian cinema. So mm. what what Russians in that era would frequently do is have like literalized metaphors, right? Like okay. what, what would appear on screen would be a metaphor for the themes of the movie, the events of the film, right? Like the political message that they're trying to deliver, but it's the metaphor is delivered in a physical way. Right, where it just literally will appear on screen or it'll cut very sharply to something completely removed from the narrative that represents the, the theme that's going on in the, in, in the film, right? Okay, and it presents it very clearly. Right, and that, I think that's what's going on here, right? Like, it's, very, it's crystal clear what that thing means, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I mean, the machine's it, like eating people. The machine is, is literally eating people. The, the, the blood of the working man is, is boiling the gears of capitalism, right? Like, that is, that is what's going on there. And I think that's the inspiration he's drawing from. It's like that, that okay. kind of, at the time, contemporary Russian cinema, which would make sense in this early part of the film that is very explicitly drawing on Marx and communism, to depict this idea of the workers being eaten by the machine that they're working on. Um, so it, it's, it's still, like we think of this as this movie that kind of created so much cinematic language, but it's still finding things to draw influence from. And mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting too. Right? Yeah, it he's, felt he's more, aware of the community. It felt more sudden or out of place at the time, but when right. I think back to it, you could see it as Freighter <laughs> kind of having a vision. Yep. Like he gets a little knocked out by the explosion of the machine and he like sees that the machine's like consuming the people. Mm -hmm. So, and they still do that today. So yeah, you absolutely. So you can see it as that kind of scene. This is like yeah. radicalized moment. Right? It really is, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's when he turns. Um, and, and that's cool too, yeah. Um, so the speaking of Freighter and, and Maria, uh, the performances in this movie and in silent film in general, I think had, that's when you see, this, I think, the most stark change, right, in terms of like the style of acting that you would mm -hmm. see in the 20s versus even t 10 years later or, or 20 years later. And I think you see a, a, a much more stage-influenced mode of acting, right, a, a necessary because they don't have any We're speech storyline. Like big. Exactly. Right. Very right? expressive. Like, very yeah. expressive faces. They're making like wild gestures all the time. Um, how, how did that play, right, like this, this silent film era S style of acting that never really left that era. It kind of stays there. 
I enjoyed it. I found it very compelling. Uh, it's kind of what you have to do, like you said, when yeah. there's no actual vocals mm -hmm. to convey more subtleties. Uh, but I thought it worked. Good. Yeah. yeah. They use a lot of makeup too to like accentuate their like facial features. Yes. Like pe people look like very pale, but they're like they have like uh, like shadow on their eyes to. Yeah, that's the main way they distinguish they distinguish Maria from Robot Maria is that Robot Maria has heavy eyeshadow <laughs> and yeah. Real Maria does not. Yeah. Um, my favorite moment acting choice in this film is definitely her crazy dance that she does in that nightclub. Like I was confused now. by that scene. <laughs> that was so good. I, the, the dance itself was just such a crazy, weird idea. Like I in a pretty weird movie. Like I, I loved that. I ended up. And the references to like witches are like yes. pretty big too. Like she does kind of like the yeah, claw hands. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, like that's involved. She gets burned at the stake. There's a lot of like witch, like references here. Yeah. Apparently they used real fire. For the burning at the stake oh thing, they like actually strapped it to the thing her. and like what? and like lit part of it on fire. And like there were effects that like for the fire that's closer to her, but like yeah. she was in legitimate danger yeah. when they were filming that. You call OSHA on this uh, <laughs> right exactly. production. They used, they used real fire, yeah. Um, but yeah, like so that nightclub sequence where she's doing her crazy dance, like it's some sort of. Seduction thing, obviously, right? Like yeah. you, you see here, like, like the, those dudes were really thirsty, <laughs> right? The audience is enthralled, right, yeah. at this point. Um, and I think it's one of the places where the the plot's the loosest, right? Because like what she's supposed to be doing is seducing the working class, and these guys look like they're members of the upper class. Yeah, they're all clearly very affluent. They people. all they were all wearing tuxedos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so probably. Um, and I think that like you can point to some. Like there, there are numerous places in this movie where I think you can point to some weird plotting choices, right? And, and not just in the sense that like they're paced differently than we would expect today, but just in the sense that they, they kind of really don't make sense. And uh, this is a movie I think you kind of have to like experience rather than like understand all the sure. time, right? Like it's not gonna hit on it, it, uh, on every plot beat that you would expect it to. And like it's drawing on these German expressionist ideas, which are also not necessarily concerned with formal logic being applied to what's going on. Yeah. Um, so like you, you understand what this character is capable of, and you understand the mood being placed on her in that scene, right? Like that that kind of dance is kind of it's kind of undeniable, right? Like you know what it means. Right, and you I'm feel not what it means. Sure, if that scene <laughs> yeah. was in the version that I watched. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah. So, so she's like in this nightclub, and there's like dudes in tuxedos, and they have like kaleidoscope shots. Oh of, yeah, of like her and the dudes' faces. Yeah. Those are really tricky. I don't know how the hell they did that. And she does this really bizarre dance, and you would remember the dance. Yeah, yeah I remember it. <clears throat> okay. Being depicted, I don't remember it in my most recent watch. Okay. Hmm. So. So it wasn't in this, the German version that you watched this time. Yeah. Okay. Which but makes sense. Like a lot of the film, like hit the cut. Was there. lost. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess yeah, if you're gonna cut something, that's probably on the list because it fits so strangely into the rest of the narrative. Yeah, I wonder if sure. there's more significance to the Bible reference they use in that part. Yeah. Because she mirrored directly that like passage uh, from the Bible about Babylon the Great and all that. And like I'm terrible with Bible stuff because <clears throat> I wasn't raised Christian or anything well, like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what all this stuff means. It starts with the Tower of Babel reference too, right? Because that's yeah. where we yeah. see Frieder's father is like it's like his office, right? Yeah. Yes. That I mean, are you familiar with the Tower of Babel story in the Bible? Because they what they tell here is not the biblical Tower of Babel story. No, it's it's a. Uh, they they built a tower sure and God got mad or something like that. Right. So the, the the role that this plays in the Bible is that so you you have these leaders of the, the world they want to build a tower to to reach heaven so that they can re, they can meet God. So they hire a bunch of people and they start building this tower and God notices and God doesn't destroy the tower. What God does is introduce different languages to everyone there. No. So they can't speak anymore. That's where we get the term babbling. Mm -hmm. Right, because you can't understand what someone is saying. So that th that is the biblical explanation for why people speak different languages. Okay, it's the it's the Tower of Babel, um, and it's God's punishment for hubris. Right, that now we have to deal with that. Okay, um, so. I think here it just means that Friedersen mm -hmm. is godlike in his stature right. as the ruler of this like city. Right. We're talking about like the factory. historical relation between people in power and the 
the laborers, right? Because like throughout all of history, we've had like people who come into power and force people to build stuff for them, right? Like we had the pyramids and all that, and like those those workers didn't get paid, I'm sure. Right. Well, and and the the workers' punishment in this telling of the Tower of Babel story is to be workers, right? Yeah. Like you you try to rise above your station, and that is a sin, right? Like that is that well, is wrong. Not even just workers; they're like they're actual machine cogs. Right. Like, they're just seen as yeah. uh, non-persons. A machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, that said, there are so many Christian references in this in this movie, like, way more than I remember. What is the the Babylon the Great story? It just seems like some, like, foretelling of the apocalypse or something it is. like it's, that. It's from the um, Book of Revelations, which is the last book of the Bible. Yeah. And the, the Book of Revelations is just, like, a bunch of scary imagery. That's all it is. Like, it's just, okay. like, when the world ends, this crazy thing will happen, and then this other crazy demon will show up. And that, that's where, like, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that concept... It, biblically, it's it, it's yeah. in the Book of Revelations. So, like, you could you could open up the Book of Revelations and find any kind of spooky, sure, weird demon description that you want. Like, that's all it is. <laughs> Go and write a metal song. It, literally, yes. Like, I mean, like very literally, because like the reason I was familiar with this tale is because there's an Avenged Sevenfold song that's about it. Also, a biblical reference. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> clearly. But like, they have a whole song that is about this specific with some of the specific like language too so I recognize okay. some of that I just don't know like the significance or meaning of it if there is any yeah I, I think that I mean I'm not positive I'm not going to put myself forward as a scholar of the book of revelations because it's one of the stranger books of the bible and doesn't really show up in bible studies that often believe it or not yeah. um, to, as, as in terms of how it functions in the film I think we have like not quite a Madonna horror complex but we have the Maria character standing in for the Virgin Mary, quite clearly, and then like this corrupted version of her that is going to destroy the world. And you see, like there aren't that many evil women or like evil powerful women depicted in the Bible, and like there's an example of one. Um, so that could could be the function that it's uh, the, that it's playing okay. in, in the in the film. But it's a it's a good question. I think an open I, question. I would also think that like of of all media that people <clears throat> have seen at the time, like. The Bible is probably the most read yeah. book at the time, so it gives yeah. your contemporary audience stuff to like latch on to to say like, oh, something bad is about to happen. Yeah, right. Or it's like, oh, like I get this metaphor because okay. it's the literalization of scenes that I know from the Bible. Okay, right. right. So like when they show up and they're like you have the seven deadly sins personified and like a skeleton with a scythe, right? Like you don't need to necessarily pick out what each of those sins means. Like this is. A bad sign, right? Yeah, like, it's just familiarity, right? Like this, like, something ungood is going to happen here. Yeah, or like the like the I think one of the critiques here is like the the hubris of modernism and to literalize that with the Tower of Babel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, sinful rich people. And I think that is what this movie ends up saying. Um, well, there's a couple things, but I think that that's one of them. The, the message is a little muddled, but I, well, the me- it, it's it works out to just be like straight liberalism, right? Like yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. The message is just like moderate between the good, the the rich people and the poor people, and then everybody will be happy, right? Like that's this movie would fit like right into the current Democratic Party platform, <laughs> <laughs> like at the end, um, which is kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the other message is that technology will inevitably be used to suppress poor people, right? Like that seems to be a, a large part of what's going on here. Um, that y- you see them literally used as as machine tools mm-hmm. um, in this this giant city. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting for the time, right? Because the Soviet Union is still very new. new yeah, um, and arrival within within Europe, yeah. um, and we don't, you know, there's the, it's probably a little early for the creep of fascism, but it's definitely there if you're in Germany. Definitely. Uh, so, yeah, well, yeah I mean, but we haven't seen like the, the victory uh, over fascism yet. No. Yeah. Uh, and w- what you do have in Germany at this time is an actual communist party that has seats in the Reichstag and yes. is like gaining votes. It's not the largest leftist party by a long shot, but it, is, it has a presence in the electorate. And, and one of the declared goals of the Communist Party in Germany at that time was a Soviet Germany. Like that was explicitly stated. And I, it would make sense for me that for Fritz Lang, this guy who is 
probably living pretty comfortably, probably votes a straight like social democrat ticket or yeah, something like that. Like, let's moderate this. It's saying like, oh well, yeah. maybe not, guys. <laughs> like, let's hold off for a minute here. <laughs> Um, in 1925 or 1924 or whenever yeah. when he was he was conceiving of this, um, so at that that would make perfect sense to me. Also, yeah, because it does show like the <clears throat> the workers is kind of like a whipped up crowd. They're, yes. Yeah, and so they're it, he's like a proto like person who's like identified them as just vaguely populist. Yep. Right. So they're like. You know, they let their emotions run, and they burn people at the stake. Um, right, and but, they but flood their. It, it's they kind flood of their own city. Their own city. Like it's, it's like a respectability politic. Yes, <laughs> right. Like that's yeah. that's what we see here. It's like, look, you've you've destroyed your own children because of you were looking for your economic freedom. You were trying to climb the Tower of Babel to rise above your station in a way yeah. that you shouldn't have, right? Um, and I I think that is that is problematic, right? Um, and and like the great evil that Roba Maria is supposed to be visiting upon these people is exactly that, is, yeah. is whipping them Trying up into this find frenzy. Freedom. I wrote in my notes, Roba Maria is right. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like she, she's got a point. Roba Maria is a worker. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Viva la Roba Maria. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that the, this movie does politically take a, a right turn, um, you know, after the Second well, in that it's like trying to find the center. Yeah. Right? Or right. it's like, no, we just need to get along. Yeah, because yeah. it, it starts as like a very explicitly Marxist text. Yes. Right? Like the first portion of this movie is like not subtle at all. And although it does start with the mediator sort of plot point. Right. That's like like the that's first thing you see. The epigram. Yeah. They have this, like, here's the moral of the story. Yeah, right? And they but finish like, off the first section of the movie with that line. Right. Yeah. So they, they do it. But I mean, you, you look at the moments that are dramatized in this movie. Mm -hmm. It is a rich person who goes down to where the poor people live, sees that it's terrible, feels bad for them, is immediately ra radicalized, goes to his father to plead for help to tell him about this, is re rebuffed, and like joins them, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like essentially yeah. like so far gives good. up. Yeah, like gives up his riches in order to join the the working class and fight for revolution. Class traitor. Right. <laughs> like that, that's what's going on there. Um, and like, so far, it's not a subtle tale, right? Yeah. Like, n nothing about that is, you know, nuanced, yeah. but it's good politics and certainly leftist politics. And it, it definitely is like, and here's why that's bad after that. Yeah. <laughs> and then the place that it gets to, it, I would assume, is like, we're like, all right, let's, you know, tamper, right. tamper expectations yeah. here. We don't want to, like, blow up the world. Let's not go too far. Um, <laughs> but, but no real solution offered, right? Because we just see kind of like a handshake between the, right. the it's people like, at the end. Right, now we get along. Um, and the factories aren't safer. Nope. Right? Or there anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we don't see this guy. The upper class that we see, like, doesn't really seem to have a vocation. And we don't see them sort of... Yeah, sharing in, yeah. in the wealth. What well, you see, you open the movie with like the poor people trudging down this elevator yeah. to go work at this menial, like almost looks like meaningless job, working hard in like extreme physical conditions. Cut to rich people working hard for recreation, right? Like they're running. They're right? doing like track they, and field. Yeah, they're, they're they're just doing it for fun and for leisure, right? Yeah. And like the juxtaposition is pretty uh, We clear. see them later in the film kind of like on parade and it's almost like a mm -hmm. like a Mardi Gras kind of like revelry that yeah. accidentally happens on like all the workers as they're like. Yeah, yeah. Uh, chasing Maria. Yeah, chasing Maria. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so yeah, Fritz Lang at no point in his career as far as I know was particularly subtle um, and he, he isn't here either, but um, I think the, the messaging is clear. The only character we do see explicitly punished is the uh, wonderfully named Rotwang, yeah. <laughs> who is, who is the, uh, the inventor. I mean, he's, the one, he's really depicted as the, the big bad and the ultimate villain at the end of the film because he's the one that like, corrupts the purity of, of Maria. He's the one that is, it, it gives up a portion of his humanity. You know, he's one hand short of a clap um, throughout <laughs> the film. And he's the guy that gets killed at the end. He's the one that's, that the, our hero needs to fight. Yeah, that but was... He's, like, he's the, the innovator? The inventor, or something like he's that. He's the inventor, yeah. Yeah, but he's like, like a Frankenstein character. Yes, yeah. Right, he, like the reference is explicitly Frankenstein, right? Right, and I think Connor. there's kind of a... Yes. Uh, well, actually, this movie 
predates Bride of Frankenstein, okay. which I think that movie is drawing pretty hev heavily from Metropolis. Yeah. Because mm. there's a lot of really similar imagery with like creating a bride for yourself and like your wife has died and you're finding a replacement for her using, you know, extreme measures and playing God and da 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 and every, yeah. every Frankenstein and story. Is, is, this is like a very early depiction of robots, right? It's oh, if, if not the first, right? Yeah. It, 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 yeah. You can draw a pretty straight line from this to Blade Runner. Yeah. Right. Like, and C3PO. <laughs> and C3PO. Yeah. Yes. Exact, exact design. That's um, true. But Frankenstein and this creation in this film are both based loosely on um, the Jewish mythology of the golem. The golem, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So we're kind of like tying like a few More ancient threads robots. together here. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I agree. Um, and it, yeah, and I think Metropolis like introduces this idea of the robot as a deceiver. Right, because I, I can't think of any media predating this that would have had that particular concept introduced. Yeah, the idea that a robot, you can make a robot version of a human. Right, right? and that they're indistinguishable. The implications from, of that. Right, indistinguishable from the actual thing, and there you can go right to Philip K. Dick and Blade Runner and, and all those guys, and AI, things like that. Battlestar. Um, and battle, yeah, Battlestar, certainly. So I, I, that's the first time I can think of that idea being played with here, um, and that's very forward-thinking, and that, and that we're still seeing that depicted and like grappled with in media now um, speaks to just how imaginative and that, that Fritz Lang was. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really extraordinary stuff, <laughs> actually. Yeah, also, his, like, ver like, his future city was, like, very imaginative, mm -hmm. too. We don't see it, like, a ton, but <laughs> the, when we're above ground and we see the, like, the airplanes and, like, all the, like, aircrafts. There's a lot of traffic. Stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's cool, and it's, like, very it's appealing. Incredible. It's, like, kind of, like, I'd want to call it, like, steampunk, but it's, like, at the time, it's, <laughs> right. like, uh, you know. Contemporary with steam, so. right? That's yeah. Art Deco exactly. punk. Well, yeah, and, and he still manages to like draw such a stark difference between the two cities, right? Because the the Art Deco upper city does look cool, right? It looks yeah. like it looks like something desirable, whereas the other one is yeah. still impressive in terms of the undercity is still impressive in terms of set design and production scale, right? And scale, but it still looks like this oppressive place. It's right bleak. There. There's a ceiling. There's yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, there is. A, it's underground. Right, and every, everything looks, you know, confusing and very uniform. Yeah, right. Yeah, you have these guys watching, walking in a rows, you know, had all in the same posture, um, so that everybody's he, wearing like a dark jumpsuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, so it's impressive set design, but it's also set design built towards a purpose. Um, and I think it'd be easy, and we see it in modern film all the time, to just like get lost in the the fact of doing the thing without thinking about how it interacts in the film. Um, so again, credit to to Fritz Lang. Uh, where it's due. Yeah, uh, I I love the depictions of the underground. They're mm -hmm. they're so like the expansive sets are amazing. Yeah, yeah, the exp yeah. but also like the the closer detailed sets too. Because the the yeah. one of the sequences I remembered most crisply um, from my earlier viewing back in college was when um, the the sun does take over for that random worker and he has to like point the hands of that weird clock yeah, at, at the, the various lights, lights yeah. right? And it's like this useless task, yeah. right? Like it's this, this task that like is, doesn't seem connected to anything productive yeah. in any way, or if it is, this guy has no idea what it is, right? Like complete alienation from his, the, the product of his labor, which is straight out of dust Marks, capital. Yeah, yeah. and I, I remember that really clearly, and like, that he can design that kind of close in, closer in set piece and have it still be memorable uh, is still you know extraordinary. And then it yeah. looks like a clock, and that they're working these ten-hour days, and like you see that you, you literally see your life being sucked away. That's another thing I this saw. Trivial that task. I thought was effective is that the workers have a ten-hour clock. Yep. So that's like all their time, that's their entire day, that's all they are. Yep. Whereas you go above ground, you go to Freiderson's office and he's got just a normal, a normal 12 hour clock. 12 hour clock, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so like you can, if you have a 10 hour clock, I guess you like fit in another work day during the course of the week or something over the, over the course of a week. Well, the, it's just their entire life is measured yep. by their shift. Yep, exactly. 
Um, they did have another 24-hour thing above it to indicate that, I think. Right. I didn't stop and check, but there was a 24-hour thing yeah. above it. Yeah, but the, yeah, like that big wheel that Freighter is working on is, it, it is a clock. and like you're, The clock gets answer. superimposed over it at some point. Yes. Yeah, and like, again, the metaphor's clear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, a, not a subtle guy, that Fritz Lang. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this is, uh, Fritz Lang is often credited with being one of the German expressionists. And I think you see that a lot in this movie. Um, and especially later on in the film, I think. Uh, th that's most, the, the film that that concept is most closely tied to is obviously Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Um, but I think you see it here as well. This idea that, that you can make your, a lot of use of light and shadow and things like that, but just making things bigger and depicting feelings physically in a way that doesn't necessarily have to align with reality and like isn't necessarily trying to be representational. Yeah. And I think we see that in this movie a lot. Um, yeah, Lenny Riefenstahl used that or borrowed that mm -hmm. a lot, you know, just a few years later um, in, I think, Olympia. That, that's that like sounds... the, the big one. Yeah. Well, Trying for the Will is the big one. Yeah, Olympia is also, um, but that one's interesting because it starts at, in like this like statue garden, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's the film about the thirty-two Olympics, right, or the thirty-six Olympics, 36. thirty-four. Yeah, I don't know, 36. somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. Well, Hitler would have been in power, so it would have been thirty-six, most likely. Yeah, it can't have been. Yeah, because he was, became chancellor in thirty-three, so whatever the Olympics was after that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the the metaphor there is pretty obvious. So they start like among like the kind of the pantheon of, of the gods, and then they switch into depictions of like German athletes. Yeah, and it's and it again it feels a lot like this film where it's like very obvious like metaphor. Sure. Work. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Well, like you have those obvious metaphors, but it's also like depicting feeling, right? And especially through shadow. Like I think that German expression is yeah, associated awe, with like awe is like a big part of it. Right. Like the, the the sequence I remember most clearly is when Maria is in the catacombs and you mm -hmm. have the the Rotwang character um, like hunting her with a flashlight or whatever and there's like these skulls all over the place mm -hmm. and she, you have her shadow up against the wall now and then and like that seems like something straight out of Caligari or any of the other like things that we would associate with German expressionism more closely. Um, and then that it, it's like the most horror-influenced uh, moment of the film. Um, and I don't think that Fritz Lang necessarily gets as much credit for his work in that area, but it's definitely here. Right? And I think that you can pick out a few spots. Yeah. I, I wonder, I, I didn't do any research on this, but I would love to know like what the contemporary reaction is. I know everybody thought it was too long, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I yeah, I haven't done any research as well, uh, either. But he was able to come to the United States and start working like immediately. Essentially, like there, there really wasn't that much of a break in his career after he fled Germany. Um, so, I mean, plenty of German filmmakers had that that same experience, like Peter Lorre or um, whoever else. But uh, yeah, he was among them. So yeah, I have a feeling he had some sort of positive response. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know when the or when the scholarship on this movie would have uh, taken off because it's, it's also certainly out there. But yeah, it's it, it looms large. Mm -hmm. uh, any any closing thoughts on Metropolis? No, I mean just glad I enjoyed it because I'd been kind of building it up a bit, right? Because it's it's so highly regarded in the film community. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. Yeah, and, and I, I liked it this time around too. I. I, I I think it's still not, not quite up to the, the level of M for me, but that's just, I think, pure personal preference uh, more, than, more than anything. Uh, but yeah, this is, it, it's required viewing, I think, that if you want to watch film in a ser any kind of serious way, like you need to have seen Metropolis, right? It's just one of those canon-level movies. For yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah, it's a cool film. Yeah, I didn't know you were such a big fan, having had, like, seen it multiple times. Yeah, I mean, I'm like a... Long fascination with special effects. And that, yeah, sure. That's <laughs> early special effects are often more compelling than contemporary. So yeah, because they, they kind of call attention to themselves, right? Like because you you know they're that it's an effect. You know you you are thinking about like how it was done. Yeah. Whereas like if you're watching you know 
a Marvel movie or something, like a, you, it's easy to forget that it's a, like in a moment forget that it's an effect, and also the answer is always to use computers. So yeah, they had <laughs> the work order for it. There's no mystery to it. Yeah, it's right? like a magic trick. <clears throat> right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and that and yeah. So that if you're studying special effects, you probably do start right around here, <laughs> right, right around the start of film, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we will be back in a moment with uh, with things we've seen. We'll see you then. And we're back with things we've seen. This is a segment where we talk about other media that we've seen um, that are not encompassed within the bounds of the regular podcast movie choices. Um, so, Crossman, what have you seen recently? Yeah, so I watched uh, um, another film from this year called Upgrade. Um, this is a I've heard of this. I don't think it made like a huge splash when it came out. Um, but the writer director is a guy who um, <coughs> created the first few Saw films. No, oh, okay. Um, so there's going to be many more upgrades. <laughs> well, there's only one so far. Um, right. But it stars uh, Logan Marshall Green, who is the star of The Invitation. Mm -hmm. um, and he's great in this, as he was in The Invitation. <coughs> um, this is a pretty dark film. I would classify it as a bummer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Officially a bummer. <laughs> but the uh, general plotting of the film is... Um, our, our character, is it's in the future, it's in the future, um, and our character is a uh, car mechanic, um, and he sells his um, old-timey cars to rich people. Um, there's an accident early in the film, and his wife is killed, and he's, uh, he's paralyzed. This um, is a bummer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and one of the rich people that he sold a car to offers him uh, this technology um, called STEM, and it's like a little chip that they're going to put in his neck, and if they implant it, he'll no longer be uh, paralyzed. paralyzed. Great. Um, so uh, he eventually agrees to do this, <coughs> and he uses this newfound ability to move around uh, to take revenge on, on the people who he thinks are responsible for uh, the incident that mm -hmm. happens like earlier earlier in the film. Um, he slowly begins to realize that he now has kind of like super movement abilities. Of course he does, yeah. Because uh, the, um, there's also a uh, sort of HAL 9000 kind of effect to the chip where he quickly realizes that the chip is like talking to him and only he can like hear the voice and if he lets the chip control his body then he has these uh, impressive abilities, and he uses these to like exact revenge on the people who've wronged him. So like Venom. That's what I was thinking when I saw the <laughs> yeah. trailer. Yeah. I kept getting the trailer confused with Venom. Uh, okay. It's like Venom. It's much more grisly. Um, okay. A lot of uh, blades being used on people and realistic violence. So it's not like Venom, okay. which has like very cartoonish violence. Right. Um, this this is a film that like definitely shows the effects of. Blades touching humans. Ooh, uh, I'm not a fan of that. <laughs> and it's pretty, it's pretty brutal. Uh, Got it. Um, this is the director or creator of Saw. There are Saw-like elements uh, in this film. Um, it's mostly a revenge film. Mm -hmm. um, it's very dark. It's pretty gripping though. It, like really moves. Like you'll, you're not going to be bored at all in the film. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it it kind of like sets itself up for a series, but it like doesn't really like it has a conclusion. It has a conclusion that is feels definitive, but they, there are ways that they could twist yeah. it. Um, a lot of great acting in the summer main character. Um, I, I think the like the physical acting of, of this role is very challenging because um, when the computer's in control, he has like very robotic oh, okay. movements. Uh -huh. um, and many scenes in the movie, he's paralyzed too, and uh, that's like sure, like yeah. So to, to do both is. Is, is impressive. Um, there's also the billionaire computer guy character mm -hmm. um, is played by an actor named Steve Danielson, who I don't really know him for much, but he kind of looks like um, Justin Bieber in this <laughs> film. Oh my um, God. He's like very like cherubic um, and has like the hair, uh, bleach blonde hair that's like lo like looks unnatural and, and strange. <laughs> He plays this like other like very robotic character who's like sort of like a meta 
human. A lot of this film was about like robotic implants and sure. medical implants and things like that. Um, also, like a very challenging role to play. I thought like his depiction was good too. Um, and then like lots of cool like fight scenes where like his ability to like move faster mm -hmm. and be able to predict where people are like trying to hurt him is like interesting and the tension between the computer letting the computer control his life versus being in control is like also very interesting so okay so it's good yeah it's good um it, a lot of weird references to a movie um called um existence which is a um the name sounds familiar yeah it's a by this director of the fly um jeff goldblum <laughs> That was that was that wasn't a joke. I thought you were actually. Talking no, uh, David about Cronenberg, it. the director oh. of The Fly. Oh, oh right. so you were talking All about right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Existence is about uh, it's, it's it's about a lot of things. So it's about like virtual reality. And it's about like the biological and the digital and the crossover Very between the two. I felt like there was a lot of like Cronenberg okay. moments in this film. So like video drama and fellows. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, for sure. Um, you you might like there's a lot of like the neon kind of drive stuff happening in the film too. Nice. Yeah, it's cool. It's a it was a cool film. I, I liked it a lot. And okay. I wasn't really sure what to expect. Well, um, cool. It's, yeah, it's good. Good. So. Okay. Um, I saw I saw two movies that I want to talk about. I'm going to cover their plots briefly because I want to talk them on a discuss them on a different level than what was actually in the movies. Um, so I saw Roma and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs in the theater <laughs> this past weekend. Bell Buster Scruggs is the most recent Coen Brothers movie. For Netflix. For Netflix, yeah. yes. I saw it in a theater. This is what I want to talk about, but I'll talk about the movie for a little bit first. Okay. Um, so it's told in six parts. It's, a, it's six Western stories, so they kind of act as short films. It's a different cast. They're disconnected narratively from each other entirely, and they feel like Coen Brothers movies. So, you know, like really grim stuff happens, and there's like absurdist language humor and, and things like that. Um, they're all, all of the individual sequences are good. They add up to, A, making it crystal clear that the Coen brothers are still the, some of the best filmmakers that we have working today. They have an excellent handle on this specific genre, a good enough handle that they're able to, A, depict the genre as, and critique it at the same time. So we have singing cowboy tropes from like 30, 20s and 30s westerns. We have like a tragic romance kind of story. We have a, almost, what functions as like a silent film with Liam Neeson in it. Um, we, we have a horror portion at the end of the movie. Like they're able to do all this stuff really dexterously and have it add up to something meaningful. Uh, the movie itself seems to be saying something about how we as an audience are resistant to seeing ourselves in narratives in a way that's wrong. And that when we see something depicted on a screen, there is a natural resistance to saying there is a part of you on that screen and that there's something reflecting on you as an audience member because of in the movie and rather what we say as an audience is oh that's just a movie that has nothing to do with me and I think that they're kind of tugging at this idea um, in Bruster Scruggs in, in, in an interesting way and it's worth seeing for that also it's very easy to see because it's currently on Netflix <laughs> the other movie I saw is Roma also premiered on Netflix um, this is uh, Alfonso Cuaron's most recent movie um, he is most well known for Imama to Tambien, or e e to e yeah, I got my Spanish mix, yeah. mixed up there. Um, and but Harry Potter 3. And Harry, the best Harry Potter movie, um, yes. Harry Potter 3, and uh, most recently Gravity, which he won the Academy Award for. Um, Roma is very different from all of those. Um, it is a almost autobiographical movie. It takes place in 1971-ish, early 70s, in Mexico City, in the Roma district of, of Mexico City, which is where the name comes from. Um, and also where Caron grew up as a, as a child. The main character is the domestic worker and nanny in this house of a mid, upper middle class family. And it's really just kind of almost a series of vignettes in her life and just like how she deals with, you know, being a woman in this context, being pregnant in this context, uh, it, being a domestic worker, not making that much money. What's most notable about the film is, is how it's shot. So he in typical Corone fashion is using a lot of panoramic shots. So there are very few cuts, but very full scenes. So you'll have a lot of people, you'll have very detailed, very intricate sets, and Corone will situate the camera on one end of the set, and people will be moving in and outside of the frame, interacting with one another, and he'll slowly pan across an entire room, or courtyard, or forest, or beach, or whatever it is that he is 
shooting in mm -hmm. very careful detail. And it is very clear how much thought that he put into this and how much each little bit has to interact and move and you know be engaged with throughout these very frequent shots, these, these slow panoramic shots. That is to say this movie begs to be seen on a large screen. Right, like it, it's a it's a slice of life movie. It's a it is narratively speaking a smaller film. It is an intimate film, but the way that he constructs it makes it feel so much more and so much larger than that. Most people aren't going to have an opportunity to see Roma on a big screen. All right, it, it, this is that Netflix broke their usual rule of date, date and time being dead on, released on Netflix online and released in the theater same day. Roma came out two weeks in, in theaters two weeks before it was showing up on Netflix. So by the time we post this episode, it should be available. That said, you will enjoy it if you see it at home. You will enjoy it uh, if you, you watch it on Netflix. It is better seeing it in theaters. And having watched both of these movies now back to back on the same day, movies that I could have you know watched at home with my Netflix subscription, I I am torn. Because on the one hand, I see the value of what Netflix does, where they take big name directors like Joel and Ethan Cohn, like Alfonso Cuaron, and says, yes, you too, person that lives in the middle of nowhere without access to boutique theaters, you can watch these movies, you can have access to them quickly, you don't have to wait for them to come out on DVD or whatever, like you can have them same day. On the other hand, the theater is special. And like, we have a space set aside where you're supposed to look at a piece of art and pay attention to only that for a period. And pulling our biggest names away from that and pulling art that is clearly designed for that kind of presentation out of that context is disturbing to me um, and, and troubling. I, I have not resolved my thoughts on this issue. Um, suffice to say, I'm very grateful that I was able to see Roma on a large screen. And I encourage people that live in large cities to go watch it, because um, it, it really is a, a gorgeous film. Um, but it, I, I hope this doesn't mean that next time someone need, Netflix gets a big movie that wants to be on a big screen, they decide to just release it at home. They decide that it's not worth it to, to distribute it to, to theaters. So we'll find out. Um, do either, they have to, though, to get considered for yes, awards? Which is why they do it, I think. Yeah. Um, so there is that. But the rule is that it has to show for like a week in Los Angeles County. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Right, so if that's all, they, if, if they say, all right, that's what we need to do to be considered, we'll show it at the Beverly for a week, pull it, save a bunch of money, put it in everybody's house, they would be able to be nominated for an Academy Award. Yeah. Yeah. The Academy can change their rule whenever they want, but that, that is where they are. I don't think they want to. Like, no. I think they're resistant to like the hegemony of... Of uh, Netflix. Yeah, so. right. Well, they, oh, they would make it, they would change the rule so it's easier, or so it's harder for Netflix. Yeah, for right. sure. And so, they are doing that already, I think. Yeah, so, yeah. And, and maybe that, that's what I'm saying. Maybe they'll do that, make it, and, and, and boost up the theater industry. They have incentive to do that. Yeah. Um, but as it stands right now, I think we're, we don't know. Um, both of these movies are very easy recommends. If you don't have access to Roma in a theater, if you don't have access to Buster Scruggs in a theater, still watch it at home. You will, it will be an extraordinary experience either way. Um, so don't fret in that sense. Um, but if you can't see it in theaters, go see it. Yeah, that is cool. That is my advice. Um, we don't have a movie for next week. Uh, the, if you were listening to our episode last week, uh, you know that this is episode 100. We took a departure, letting uh, uh, Charles uh, select the movie, and he chose well. Um, <laughs> so we're going to keep doing that. Uh, so we're taking a bit of a hiatus. Our next episode, we're shooting for early January to do a best of 2018 um, episode, similar to what we did last year. After that, we're going to kind of retool the show a little bit, change our rules of engagement. Um, so prior to this point, the rules have been, it has to be a movie that Charles hasn't seen, as indicated by the title, and a movie that both Crossman and I have seen. We're changing the second rule. Um, now it has to be a movie that either Crossman or I has seen, um, and that Charles still hasn't seen. We are also going to be rotating every three weeks, uh, we will, um, each of us will select a movie, just 
taking turns, so in, in, including Charles going forward, rather than Crossman and I just taking turns. Um, so th that is the plan from now on. We still have more, I think, that we might want to change. There might be some things that we want to add, um, and we'll have time to consider that now um, with our hiatus. Um, so thank you for listening. Um, if you've listened to more than uh, just episode 100, uh, thank you again uh, for sticking, sticking it out with us. We're not done with the show. Uh, we certainly are coming back, um, and we hope you'll still be around um, at that point. Um, it, we encourage you to still share the show and to, to um, if you like it, to tell people about it because all of our episodes are available free to download and will remain that way. Um, we hope you all have a good holiday because we will not be here for it. Um, and <laughs> join us next time for a mystery movie that we will let you know on our conventional social media. Thanks again. Uh, we'll talk to you soon.